This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A package of Republican-led bills that would allow parents to control what's taught in schools has passed through committee. The Capital Times reports. The Parental Bill of Rights would allow parents to sue a school or district under certain circumstances. Under the bill, parents would have the authority to determine, among other things, the names and pronouns used for a child at school and the instructional materials presented to students at school. It would also require schools to give notice to parents of when certain subjects would be taught allow a child to be pulled out of class during certain subjects due to a parent's personal conviction, and inform parents of any act of violence on school property. Related bills passed by the same Education Committee would require armed resource officers in some schools, encourage in-person learning, and make changes on how the performance of schools are evaluated by the state. The Republican-led bill package passed through committee yesterday and is now ready to be scheduled for a vote by the full state assembly. Plans to run all Dane County facilities off solar energy are being finalized, County Executive Joe Parisi announced today. The project will involve the construction of a 90-acre solar field in the town of Cottage Grove. The proposal, called the Yahara Solar Project, will produce enough energy to power all county buildings and facilities. Construction could begin as soon as this spring and when finished would include over 33,000 solar panels. The Dane County Board is expected to approve the project in the next few weeks. A proposal for a sprawling 3.4 million square foot Amazon warehouse and distribution center is inching closer to being built in Cottage Grove. Now that's amidst concerns from residents reports the Capital Times. Last night, the proposed Amazon facility received a unanimous unanimous support from the Cottage Grove Plan Commission, even as residents voiced their concerns about an increase in traffic and light pollution. Members of the Plan Commission say that the facility would bring great things to the village, including around $4.6 million in tax revenue each year. The proposal now moves to a vote before the Cottage Grove Village Board next Monday. A federal judge has ruled that two Monona police officers acted unconstitutionally during a 2020 arrest. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Keontae Fergie, who is black, was briefly arrested after officers came into the unlocked home where Fergie was staying. Monona police say they were called when a friend of a neighbor called the police thinking the house was unoccupied. Fergie was handcuffed and held at gunpoint by the officers until they confirmed he had permission to be there. The judge ruled that the officers had violated his right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, although he was not granted any punitive damages. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 1,586 confirmed COVID cases yesterday bringing the average number of cases per day to 1,493 over the past week. There were a total of 30 confirmed deaths from the virus across Wisconsin, bringing the total number of people who have died from COVID in Wisconsin to 11,701. Here in Dane County, there were 183 new cases of COVID, with 95 people currently hospitalized from the illness. 
Additionally, nine people died of COVID in Dane County yesterday. Currently, 60.1% of Wisconsinites have received both doses of the coronavirus vaccine. And here in Dane County, 79.4% of people have received their vaccine. And now on to today's top stories. Yesterday, the family of Quadron Wilson held a press conference outside the Dane County Jail advocating for him to be moved to a local hospital. The family claims that Wilson's condition is deteriorating in jail, where they say he is not receiving adequate care. WORT reporter Greg Jabowski has the story. Late yesterday afternoon, at 5 p.m., at a hastily called press conference, the family and the attorney of Quadron Wilson, citing an extreme sudden worsening of Wilson's physical condition, demanded the immediate transfer of Wilson from the Dane County Jail to somewhere where he could receive medical treatment for pain from the gunshot wounds Wilson received on February 3rd from as yet unidentified law enforcement officers. Maine Morris, Wilson's brother, explains why he was making this demand. Then he's just in bad pain now and it's getting bad and it's excruciating pain and it's it's getting worse. It's not getting better. So we had to have an emergency meeting. We literally got the news an hour ago. Madison attorney Steven Eisenberg, who was representing Wilson, said he had been seeing Wilson daily and noted a severe decline in his physical condition. Uh, he just told me and his mother called me and said he's in this excruciating pain, unbearable pain. I don't know. Someone needs to look at him that's a qualified health care on the morning of Thursday, February 3rd, in East Madison, Quadron Wilson, a black man, was shot multiple times in what the Dane County Sheriff at the time described only as an officer-involved shooting. Over a week later, after a series of protests and media inquiries, officials finally related that 21 officers had been involved in the plainclothes arrest of Wilson, including 13 from the Department of Criminal Investigation, three from the Madison Police Department, two agents of the federal DEA, a state trooper, and a DNR warden. Two DCI officers shot weapons shortly after Wilson's car was rammed front and back by law enforcement vehicles. Dane County Jail indicates that Wilson has only been charged with parole violations. Neither the identities of officers involved nor information on any official investigation into the shooting has come out since. Eisenberg considers this unacceptable. Quandron is a victim. He's a victim of a shooting. And we don't know who shot him. We're not told what happened. If the roles were reversed, Quandron would have been all over the papers as the shooter, and they would have dumped into his past and found everything about him that they could to dig up. But these police officers get a chance to do, to collect their thoughts and wait, and they're not complying with any of the rules. I don't know why nobody has told us who this is. The police all obviously know. I don't know what's going on in their investigation. I haven't heard anything from the district attorney's office about a officer-involved shooting investigation to determine whether this was a criminal act. And that's all the family wants. They want the answers. We all do. It's time. That was Madison attorney Steven Eisenberg speaking late yesterday afternoon with members of Quadron Wilson's friends and family in front of Dane County Jail. As of this afternoon, Dane County officials had no further word on addressing Quadron Wilson's condition or on the investigation into his shooting. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jabosky. Participants in Wisconsin's food aid program have to meet several requirements, which were waived at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Now, some Wisconsin lawmakers say it's time to reinstate those conditions. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. At the beginning of the pandemic, Wisconsin's Department of Health Services waived numerous requirements to participate in the state's food aid program. Now, some lawmakers want to reinstate those conditions. Prior to COVID, many people in Wisconsin's food share program had to meet certain work search requirements. Senator Patrick Teston, a Republican from Stevens Point and lead sponsor of a bill to reinstate those provisions, says ending the waiver could help address worker shortages. Employers are desperate for workers. And so we are trying to get every able-bodied individual that we can off of the sidelines and back in the workforce. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Wisconsin's unemployment rate hit a record low of 2.8 percent in December, the lowest rate in at least two decades. Some social justice and hunger-fighting groups oppose the bill, saying it would restrict access to important resources while many people are still feeling the pandemic's financial impact. The measure also would reinstate an 80-hour-per-month work requirement for childless, able-bodied adults. The DHS counts participation in a work search program or other job training initiative toward the 80-hour requirement. But Stephanie Young-Dorfman of the group Feeding Wisconsin told a legislative committee last week the requirements fail to address underlying challenges folks face when looking for work. Mandating work requirements, especially as we're still recovering from the pandemic, does not address the real challenges that many of our neighbors face when trying to engage in labor and training markets such as access to accessible affordable and quality child care and transportation. The bill also would require food share applicants to submit to drug testing and, if they test positive, to receive treatment. According to the DHS website, even without action from lawmakers, the food aid waiver is set to expire at the end of September. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.16 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last month, state lawmakers introduced a bill that would block gender-affirming care for transgender youth. In response to the bill, trans youth activists are holding a protest right now at the state capitol building. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Amira Parati, a senior at Memorial High School, who organized the rally. I'm on the line with Amira Pirati, a senior at Memorial High School here in Madison, who just about right now is down at the Capitol leading a rally against Senate Bill 915. Amira, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you for having me. So let's just start off with why are you out at the Capitol here today? What are you asking for? Yeah, so I and a bunch of youth and activists and just residents in Wisconsin are incredibly concerned about the contents of SB 915, which would essentially ban competent care for transgender and gender expansive youth. SB 915 was recently introduced to the Wisconsin State Legislature, and it would essentially ban the use of 
puberty blockers, which is a reversible practice of pausing puberty. Hormone replacement therapy, which is used by older teens to take the hormones that their body does not naturally reproduce or produce on their own. And surgery, uh, such as top surgery or bottom surgery to make their genitalia or body uh, align with their gender and their sense of self. I would also ban topics therapists can legally be allowed to talk about in talk therapy, especially regarding to transition, which is such a key part of many youth therapy time, being able to talk with an adult who is supportive and who can help them make plans of how to talk with their family or even what medical transitions they might be interested in. And it would also ban any insurance from covering any of these procedures. So it is incredibly expansive and incredibly harmful. So I want to ask, what do you see in Senate Bill 915 that to you, what do you see in it as harmful to trans youth? What exactly would the consequences be? So the AMA, the American Psychological Association, the World Professional Association, for transgender health and countless other organizations of medical professionals and trans activists have created guidelines for what competent care for transgender youth is. So this is based on youth experience, what youth are able to consent to, and what they need. And so they've come up with these series of guidelines that medical professionals, whether they are surgeons or primary care physicians or therapists or psychiatrists, can use to give good care to youth who they may not otherwise know how to care for. So this is very much based on what youth are able to consent to, what is reversible at the time, and what the majority of youth need, especially when they show signs of gender dysphoria or signs of incongruence between who they know they are and how they exist in the world. So this bill basically stops all of this care from being able to be implemented in the state of Wisconsin. So youth would not be able to get the medications their doctor prescribes. They would not be able to get the surgery that they, their parents, their doctors, their therapists, psychiatrists, and their insurance think is necessary for their health and safety. So what it does is it places barriers between youth and their needs and the care that they deserve. And to me, one of the really appalling parts of this bill is that it will not become law. Governor Tony Evers has in the past vetoed many bills that would harm trans youth and promised to do so in the future. So any bill that would come to his desk, SB 915 and its if there would be a, a counterpart in the assembly, that would not become law. However, by forcing Governor Evers to veto a bill, which many Republicans say is harming trans youth, even though it is what medical professionals are prescribing, they can use this to campaign against him and get him out of office. So in the meantime, trans youth not only are afraid that their care is going to be taken away from them, they would be forced to stop hormones. They would be forced to stop talking to their therapists about topics. But it also encourages debate about our right to exist and our right to exist in a world and in bodies and 
as people with bodily autonomy in this world, and all for the political gain of some Republican senators, real candidates, representatives, and to me, that is just atrocious. You don't play with our lives. You don't play with our care. We deserve this. And instead of listening to the medical care professionals, instead of listening to the families who have to consent for this care, instead of listening to youth who know what they need and who are the only people who actually live in their bodies, this bill would just ban all of this care without any exception. And that is incredibly harmful. So you mentioned a little bit earlier about talking with therapists. Do you know what sort of topics they wouldn't be allowed to talk to their therapists about? I am not part of legislative council, and I'm not sure how this bill would, if it became law, how it would exactly be applied. But in talking with other activists who have worked, the general sense is that therapists would not be able to support any like during talk therapy in regards to their medical transition. So for many youth who are just like starting to think about their gender dysphoria, it can be incredibly helpful to have an adult to say, to talk with and talk through the options to get information so they can make decisions about their body either then or in the future and say, I have, for instance, uh, dysphoria about my voice. And uh, I think taking testosterone, for example, could help with that. And talking through what are the consequences? What would it cost? If my family doesn't get that I'm trans, how can we get there? And having an, an outside opinion that is non-judgmental can be incredibly helpful. But therapists and psychiatrists may be prevented from even saying that. Or even just saying, yes, I hear that you want surgery once you are 18. Or yes, I hear that you want any other medical procedure that could help you exist happily in your body. Let's make a plan for when you're 18 or in a couple of years, or even for some use, especially if it's a reversible procedure. How can we make this happen now or in the next few months? So this is incredibly harmful, especially since youth, trans youth have incredibly high rates of suicide and suicidal ideation. And having medical care and medical transition has been proven to decrease suicidal ideation by 52%. This is an incredible thing to have a process that helps so many youth to live happily in their bodies and that can help both their physical and mental health. And over the course of the pandemic, over 50% of transgender and non-binary youth seriously considered attempting suicide. Part of this is living in a world generally that denies the right to exist and that constantly dehumanizes you. This could be forcing you to stay in a home with transphobic family members or any of the other countless things that make it harder for us to exist. And to take away mental health care that is specific and that helps youth discover who they are and talk through it and have perhaps the only ear that is actually kind and actually wants to listen. That is just attacking youth and using youth for political gain and using our lives and our well-being and our safety so you can line your pockets or so that you can gain votes or you can gain money. And that's not governing. That is using your constituents so you can gain power. And 
that's not what this state needs. That's not what youth need. Well, Amira, we are running up against the clock here. So do you have any (laughs) final thoughts on any of this or on the rally that's being held tonight? Yeah. So if you are able, if you want to learn more, you can do so at bit.ly, B-I-T, dot L-Y slash Kids Deserve Care. This This is the website that Wisconsin Transgender Rights Coalition has created as a site to to educate the public and to help them take action against these bills. And the most basic thing you can do is to listen and trust the trans youth in your life. And they know what's best for them. And it's helping them and supporting them and lead their own journey. And if you're able to come to protests, do that. We need to hear your voice. We need to hear your support. If you can call your representatives, if you can call the sponsors of this bill, do that. There are countless ways to get involved. And we're going to be at the Capitol tonight to show that we're not going to take these bills lying down. And you can do that too. And it's finding a way that is best for you and taking action is so important. Thanks. I've been talking with Amira Pirodi, who organized tonight's rally at the Capitol building. Amira, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Thanks. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up. Wastelands explores the changing landscape of e-recycling. Transparency Talk gives us the down low on the state Supreme Court case earlier this week, And Radio Chipstone considers the complicated world of historical dress. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in with the BBC, and we'll be right back. place at this switchboard and the signal lights come on, visualize, if you can, what lies beyond it, beyond each glowing light. Remember the fun of answering phones for WORT pledge drives? Talking to donors who love WORT as much as you do? We have been hard at work making sure that everything is triple safe for your return to the fun and chaos of a live pledge drive, which starts March 1st through the 14th. We've moved all pledge takers into our record library, where you'll be separated by see-through vinyl sheets. You'll be able to catch up with other volunteers safely. Your space will be 100% sanitized before you arrive, and masks and social distancing are being strictly enforced for anyone outside closed-door spaces or behind their vinyl shield. Single-serve snacks will be provided. You just need to be within five months of your last COVID vaccination to enter the WORT studios. Check out all the changes we've made since you've been gone. Sign up for a shift today by visiting wortfm.org and clicking the picture of the switchboard operator on the left side of the page. That's March 1st through the 14th for the Winter Pledge Drive. FPC Live presents Wisconsin Global Fest 2022 on Friday, February 18th at 7 p.m. at the Majestic Theater. Global Fest is part of the Wisconsin Fests, which happen over many stages and venues, celebrating the diversity of music made in Wisconsin. Global Fest features the funky Afrobeat of Immigre, Caribbean and Latin jazz of De La Buena, and the reggae jazz fusion.
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. When we think of recycling, we usually think of paper, plastic, aluminum, and glass. But a new type of recycling is trying to break through. Electronics recycling is carving out its part of the waste stream. WORT reporter Nate Carlin has the story. I'm at an electronics recycling center in Janesville, where dozens of old TVs are awaiting disassembly. They're the boxy kind that you might find collecting dust in your basement. About two decades ago, the manufacturer of this kind of television mostly stopped. The industry moved away from this bulky design in favor of flat screen models. Yet they're still around, languishing in basements, dorms, and secondhand stores. Eventually, they get thrown away for good. Which brings us to these TVs in Janesville, which are being demanufactured. These are cathode ray tube TVs, sometimes shortened to CRT TVs. It's one of the highest value materials that we bring in. People just still have them and they're getting rid of them. And we thought about five years ago that they would be gone by this point, And now we're thinking five to 10 more years. We're talking about millions of pounds per year just of CRT devices. That's Emily Garcia. She's the plant manager at Universal Recycling Technologies, an e-recycling company based in Janesville. When the company began in the early 2000s, it was exclusively disassembling cathode ray tube televisions. Boutique businesses, like Universal Recycling Technologies, sprang up to recycle the expensive glass tubes within these TVs, keeping them from the landfill. Ray Zilke, vice president of sales and marketing for Universal Recycling Technologies, says the industry has changed over the decades. As technology has evolved, household computers to laptops to cell phones, and now AirPods, smaller and smaller electronics that do more and more that all have batteries. That's kind of the evolution in a very high level, but the industry is continuing to grow and we get more units in every year, but the weight decreases just from the overall size of units. Now, universal recycling is capable of a whole host of electronics recycling. And as the variety has grown, so has their number of plants. The company now spans the country with three other similar plants in Texas, Oregon, and Vermont. It wasn't just the new technologies that fueled the growth of e-recycling. In 2003, e-recycling got a big break when California outlawed putting electronics in landfills. A whole flurry of states followed suit with new regulations around e-waste, including Wisconsin in 2010. Now it is illegal to put computers, televisions, and cell phones into a landfill, as well as a few other assorted electronics. The city of Madison sends the electronics it collects to Universal Recycling Technologies, making up some of the nearly 400,000 pounds of electronics the facility handles daily. Garcia says that every day they see products they haven't seen before. Most of the time they have the same um, premise, you know, look inside, see what's in there, are there things we have to remove, or can we just chuck it in the shredder and go? Um, Every day they're coming out with a new product that has a battery inside of it. If batteries go through our shredder, that could potentially cause a thermal event, which is what we do not want. So in that aspect, we have to look at almost every single item that comes in here and do a quality check on it before we process it. Whatever the type, the electronics are treated approximately the same. Exterior wiring is cut, batteries are removed, and then they are run through a massive industrial shredder, turning everything into thin strips no longer than a few inches. Magnets pull out steel, and directed air blows out aluminum. From there, the shredded material is run through a large machine called an optical sorter that uses color and sheen to sort materials by type. 
In the end, there are only a few constituent parts to the wide array of electronics, plastic, glass, metal, and circuit boards. The glass is ground down into a fine powder to be sold to manufacturers. It's the only product from this plant that is sent directly to be remade into new products. All the other materials, though, are sold to even more specialized recyclers. These materials need more processing before they are ready to be used in new products. The plastics have to go through another sorter before they are ready to be sent to plastics recyclers. This sorter uses water at different densities to separate the plastics using flotation. For all the extra work, plastics recycling is the least profitable material here. While circuit boards have valuable metals in them, like silver and gold, plastic is still quite cheap. And additives are commonly added to plastic that make them harder to sort by type. Zolke says that plastics are a tough material stream to keep up to date with. It causes us issues because if you look at our plastic separation model out there, we have more and more plastics falling out because they don't fit into the two buckets that, that we're really looking for, right? You know, maybe in the past, had we done that 10 years ago, we maybe would have captured 60 or 70% into those two buckets. And now we're capturing uh, probably 30, maybe 40% into those two buckets because of the, because of the differences <coughs> in the plastics that are being used. In the back end of the plant, huge sacks filled with homogenous material await shipment to the next leg in their recycling journey. In general, the world of recycling is a world of layers. Consumer goods have to go through multiple instances of breakdown and sorting before they are turned into new products. Any single recycling company is usually responsible for only a single layer in the process. Sometimes this leads to problems in the recycling industry. Electronics recycling in particular has an unsavory reputation for stripping the valuable materials out of electronics and then sending the hazardous or cheap materials overseas to be dumped. Zulki says they are working to ensure that they don't contribute to overseas dumping. What we have done is become part of the eStewards network. It's a certification where companies um, certify that they're not going to send waste product to developing countries. You get audited every year to that process, and they, they come in, they audit our books, do mass balance checks to ensure that where we say we're sending our product, it's really going there. But the biggest help in that and alleviating that problem has been China itself and creating their green fence, as they call it, and <coughs> eliminating the import of those products. They've actually done a decent job in eliminating that trade of waste going into their country. The volume of recycled electronics has recently stagnated. After the first wave of states outlawed electronics and landfills, other states hesitated to follow suit. Currently, electronics recycling is only required in about two dozen states. Garcia says they think the people tightening their belts and throwing less away in the last couple years might also be a factor. Last year in 2020, we actually saw a reduction of inbounds. We're associating that with COVID, people not wanting to kind of spring clean and fall clean as much, or if they are spring cleaning, they're pushing their CRTs further back into the basement. We do anticipate that volume uh, not necessarily skyrocketing over the next couple years, but definitely going up more than what we've seen the past two years. And that's pretty standard in this industry overall. Everyone kind of saw a decrease during 2020 and 2021. The industry has also been battered by fluctuations in the shipping market. Waste industries in general have been hit hard by high shipping costs. Secondhand plastic or glass is worth very little by weight. The profit is all in large volumes. But now large volumes of recycled goods are expensive to ship to facilities that can handle them, and the industry is turning to new solutions and processes. As a scrap facility, which this is here at Beloit Avenue, 
it's a pennies game. Literally, you're making pennies per pound, and you just have to, the volume make, generates enough <coughs> revenue that, that you can make a profit. But if shipping costs eat away at that, which they have been, especially this year, especially, well, 2021, mm -hmm. shipping costs we've seen go up anywhere from 25% to double some of our rates from different shipping lanes. And so that's obviously eating up a large part of, of what would be profit. There's a certain lag to the e-recycling industry. Much like the old CRT TVs gathering dust in the basement, the trick is predicting the next product that is ready to be thrown away. Electronics have a long life cycle, but eventually even they need to be disposed of. Zolke says the next product they'll have to adapt to? Solar panels. Solar panels have 20, 25 year life cycle. And the first solar fields, especially by the utilities, the big solar fields were put in about that time frame. So they're coming up to be refreshed and now what are we going to do with the old panels that nobody thought of 20 years ago? Another possible recyclable material are rare earth metals. Rare earth metals are a valuable commodity used in trace amounts in advanced electronics, and as the name suggests, are quite scarce. They are also a current pawn in geopolitics, as China has threatened to stop exporting them. If this drives the price up, the trace amounts in electronics could become worth reclaiming. There is clearly value there, but Zilke says the small volumes make it a tricky material to recover. And there's multiple companies that are looking at rare earths, some much bigger than us, um, because of the concern over the availability of rare earths if China closes their border yeah. and says, hey, we're not shipping those out anymore, right? There's a lot of research and development going into that, and how do we recover those? Because there is su such a finite amount in each computer circuit board, for example, how do you actually recover that and cost justify it versus, you know, the gold and silver and, and copper, palladium, where you can recover those and, and make money off of that? This is a common rhythm in the recycling industry. There is a constant push and pull to the pricing of recyclable materials. When prices of goods are high, recycling becomes viable, like with the glass cylinders and CRT TVs. But when the prices are low, recycling can struggle to be profitable. Nowadays, universal recycling technology barely breaks even on them. Reporting for WORT News and Wastelands, this is Nate Carlin. It's 6.43 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Contributor Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, founder and president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to talk about open records and open government. This week, Kamenick and Chester examined a nearly two-year-old records lawsuit that landed before the state's high court earlier this week. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how you holding up this week? Good, Jonah. Happy late Valentine's Day. Happy late Valentine's Day, post-Valentine's Day, as I like to call it. You know what I was doing for Valentine's? Tell, tell me what you were doing for Valentine's Day, Tom. 
I was arguing in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. That was quite a romantic date with my wife and my daughter along. <laughs> Truly, there is no more ro- more romantic venue than the halls of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Tell us about why you were before the state's high court this week. That very topic also happens to be the topic of today's episode, as it turns out. Talk to me about Wisconsin manufacturers and commerce versus Governor Tony Evers. Yeah, I'm going to abbreviate that to WMC so I don't have to repeat it 20 times during this conversation. But so this case goes back to September of 2020. And at that point, the DHS, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, announced we're going to release the names of large businesses around the state that have had at least two of the following, either cases among their employees or contacts. So not necessarily, you wouldn't know how many of each, but you know there would be at least two cases or close contacts among their employees. So at that point, WMC and a few other lobby groups file a lawsuit and try to stop the release of this. Immediately, I intervened on behalf of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel because the Journal Sentinel was actually one of the media organizations that requested information like this. And actually, turns out there were over 20 record requests uh, for similar information that were the subject of this suit. This particular case has been, I don't know if mired in the courts is the proper term here, but this has been ongoing for a while, right? What took it so long to get before the Supreme Court? To be fair, for litigation, it's actually moved pretty fast. And that's because right after the circuit court entered an injunction stopping the release, we filed an immediate appeal to the Court of Appeals. And the the Court of Appeals proceeded on an expedited basis, thankfully, and actually reversed the circuit court. Although that didn't result in the release of the records because that uh, that reversal was stayed because WMC appealed to the Supreme Court. And so then the Supreme Court kind of took it during its normal course. Uh, it, it took in briefs from all the different parties. And then just on Monday, they had their oral arguments. So legal theory underlying this case is WMC is saying somebody could look at these records and theoretically figure out somebody who has COVID because If this employer has, even if they have 25 or more employees, well, somebody there that worked there might have noticed somebody was gone and they could theoretically possibly figure out who that was and identify. And they say, well, and that would have the same effect as releasing confidential medical information or medical records under the state's version of HIPAA. Yeah. So let's let's drill down a little bit more deep into the arguments on Monday. I know there were sort of two issues at hand in regards to uh, to open records requests. There's the medical records issue here. And then there's the question of who can even sue. There are, there are numerous parties in this lawsuit, correct? Take me through each of those in turn. Uh, there were a couple of justices who were pointing out that these aren't medical records. These are not the patient's files. And it's not even information that's in the patient's files that's being released. Rather, these are statistical summaries that the DHS is putting together. And there's very different rules about statistical summaries. And in fact, DHS is actually required to put together and make public this kind of broad information. You know, you see this all the time is the number of deaths, the number of positive cases, the number of hospitalizations, that's that all comes from individual medical files, but it's not medical records. And it's not medical information about individuals. So so a lot of the just or rather two of the justices in particular question whether the the law even applies to this, you know, the law prohibiting release of information even applies to these summaries. Now my client, the Journal Sentinel and kind of the transparency community as a whole, has been more issued in more interested in this who can sue issue. 
So as some just justices noted, even assuming this is correct, this is just individual medical information. Why is the employer, and even more so, why does a lobby group like WMC that represents employers get to sue over individuals' medical records? You know, shouldn't the individuals be doing that? And what what legal interest does WMC have in this kind of these kind of records? And the biggest issue from my point of view has always been that the law actually prohibits anybody in its general language from filing a lawsuit to stop the release of records, except in some specific circumstances. And when I first heard about this lawsuit, my my immediate reaction was, well, I wonder how they're getting around this prohibition. I wonder how they justified their attempt to file this lawsuit. And when I got a copy of the complaint, they didn't. They, they either weren't aware of it or they knew it was there and they were just ignoring it. Uh, and so this is the main argument I've been making all along. So a little bit of history lesson here. In 1996, the Wisconsin Supreme Court for the first time created the right of a record subject to sue and stop the release of records. And in particular, this applied to government employees and in typically their personnel files or their investigation files. And the, the Supreme Court said, well, you know, it's really only fair that these records are about them. Maybe they have some reasons that they don't want the records released. So we're going to let them sue to stop. And this led to a, a short, thankfully, period where there was just this absolute deluge of lawsuits all the time. The, the uh, employees sued constantly to stop the release of these records. And oftentimes they were uh, represented by, by unions. They weren't just doing it themselves. They had a, a lot of backers to fund these lawsuits. And the legislature was very, very unhappy with this result. And in 2003, they said, okay, this is going to be different. We're not going to let the courts decide who can file these lawsuits. Since we created the open records law and we created the rights under the open records law, it's going to be up to us to decide who can file lawsuits to stop because we're going to be in charge of the remedies too. So they passed a law saying that nobody can file these lawsuits except in specific situations that we lay out. WMC has been trying to get around that prohibition by using those medical records we talked about. But the problem for them is the law says individuals can file lawsuits to stop the release of records, <laughs> their own records. It doesn't say anything about employers, much less employer lobbying groups. And overall, my, my argument for the Supreme Court focused on this, and, and I said, that this lawsuit by itself shows exactly why the legislature did this. They didn't want the release of records getting tied up in the courts for years. The record requests in this in this case go back over two years. And so the WMC has been able to uh, successfully stop and delay the release of these records just by delaying it for two years. They've already achieved a major goal. That's a huge benefit for them. Even if they lose in the end, they pushed off doomsday for so long. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with me. It's my pleasure, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. Have you ever watched an episode of a television show or a movie set in the 1800s and longed to wear the fashions of that complicated and problematic time period? Well, feature contributor Jennifer Fields is the host of a podcast called Refrangible. And in the latest episode, titled Clothing and Identity, Revisiting Our Past One Stitch at a Time, she explores the fascination with and the business side of historical dress. 
in this edition of Radio Chipstone, which is an excerpt of Field's podcast, we're going to meet Simone Ryan, a novice seamstress with a complicated relationship with beautiful historical garments. My name is Simone, and I'm a relatively new historical costumer. It is something that I'm fascinated with, kind of my new addiction. Years ago, in the 90s, I started watching historical uh, period films, like Sense and Sensibility, and I always just loved the gowns and the grandeur of it all and was always dreaming of an opportunity to go to a ball but just to dress up and have fun but really didn't see that that was ever going to be an opportunity and then just more and more I started seeing on social media posts where people were actually dressing this way and so it's just it's just something that I've been watching and watching and watching from the sidelines, but wanting to be a part of. And in the past probably year and a half, I've moved towards that direction to actually kind of step into that clothing. I'm not a reenactor. Um, and so I'm studying more the history of the clothing and staying a little bit away at this time from the things that were happening, although obviously we know what was happening. Um, and at one point my husband found this plantation and had invited, the head said like, let's go do this. And I was like, I I can't do that. So I, I'm, I recognize obviously that, oh, it's just complicated. It's hard to say. Right now I'm just enjoying the beauty and the, the pageantry of it um, and joining some organizations where I'm seeing that there may be some diversity issues um, just from social media things, but I haven't personally been going into and just like looking at the history. My family is from Barbados, which is in the Caribbean. And so I have been like trying to like research, like what would someone have been wearing that was a person of color in those time frames, and trying to see that and learning that in New Orleans in the 1700s, people of color had to always have their hair covered. And so trying to look at that and say, now if I'm going to be doing historical costuming, what if I pull in those parts where I'm being authentic, um, but not necessarily not getting to wear the pretty dresses. I wanna wear the pretty dresses. And there's also something about thinking that, okay, maybe at that time frame all of us didn't get to wear these dresses, but what would they think about the fact that we can wear them now? And I don't know, like there's a part that's like doing them justice that way and, and claiming it, that I can wear those gowns that maybe you weren't able to wear then, but, but then they did wear them because there's paintings and there's, there's, there's evidence that they existed. So I am a newbie sewer, newbie seamstress. Two years ago, I asked that I get a sewing machine for Christmas, and my husband got that for me. I'd only taken a home ec class back in high school a long time ago, so I have a very basic understanding of the sewing machine. Like, how am I going to do this? And 
constantly looking at websites and finding patterns. And um, a friend of mine um, is a wonderfully gifted seamstress here in Texas, where I live now. And I just asked her, would you help me? And so I had purchased some dresses that were pre-made. Um, but this most recent dress was the first one that's been made um, by me with a lot of help. So now I think my goal is to try to do one by myself. It's kind of this funny thing because it's like, well, where can I wear it? I want to wear it. And then people are, people in the groups that I see, they're like, wear it anywhere. Go to the grocery store, do it. I have not done it yet, um, but I'm, I'm very proud of it and very proud that that I was part of the making and I just keep um, keep preparing to do the, this next one that that I'm gonna try I'm gonna try and of it it'll be rusty but it's just fun and and part of this is just fun for me um, and not making it more than that I'm just having fun I feel like it becomes mine it doesn't feel costumey it just feels wonderful And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Greg Jabowski and Jonah Chester of the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to the feature contributors Tom Kamenick, Jennifer Fields, and Nate Carlin. D Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wikihout produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. You don't have to miss any of WORT's local news. You can get the local news wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.